welcome to episode 100 of Real Life Ghost Stories. Woo! How you do? Can you believe we're doing this for 100 episodes? <laughs> we are centurions. It's so weird. It doesn't feel like that long and yet it also feels like forever. I just can't get my head around it. I'm so happy that we've reached episode 100. You got that weird vocal noise before I said how you do. I yes. appreciated that. You haven't done a weird woo in quite a long no, time, actually. You're kicking it, bringing it back to the old school ways just for episode 100. And my voice is quite low key today as well. So doing that higher note did not work. <laughs> so to kick things off for episode 100, we need to say thanks to our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Saza. David Tichavsky. Brantley Harrison. Glad Sandoval. Alan McAnini. Emily Sandlin. Margaret Ryan. Laura Holly. Farah McClammy. Louise Lunas. Kate Milton Malden. Alex Maloney. Kate Moore. Lauren Morrison. Nadia Sujanji. Jessica Keith. Andrea Drager. Etienne. Janice Fawcett. Chrissy Wasserface. James McCluskey. Danny Craterfill. Sovan Lee Lee Cheng. Wendigo Punk. M.K.S. And Beth. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you so much. I would also like to thank everybody, and I know this probably feels like a million years ago now, but when in the month of August we did our Out of the Woods Wildlife Drive, I guess you would call it, and we raised a pretty amazing amount of money. It was well over $1,500. Go you guys. I mean, I say we, you guys raised. We didn't, (laughs) you guys did. And I just wanted to say... Thank you so much for everybody that donated and equally everybody that liked it on Instagram, shared the posts, whatever it was that you did, your own way of contributing. So we appreciate it. If you're wondering why we left it so late to say thank you, it's because we're actually recording this episode in August. Oh no, it's not August. It's way into September. That's when we're recording it. So we're actually recording this episode in September. So the drive for Out of the Woods Wildlife has just finished. Yep. And thank you so much to everybody who has donated. Our film review this week. Our film review is Host. Host was released in 2020. It has 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb and 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. 100%. I'd like to clarify that's probably because it's such a recent film. Okay. Would you like a synopsis? I would. Six friends accidentally invite the attention of a demonic presence during an online seance and begin noticing strange occurrences in their homes. What were your thoughts on this film? It's a very similar production way of doing things, which doesn't make sense, as Unfriended. Very similar, yeah. Um, What I liked about it was that it was actually recorded in lockdown. So it was true to that story. Um, It was done on the premise of a kind of zoom based software and these girls having a seance and i thought it was actually pretty decent for what it was i have to agree i i was quite like i was quite freaked out watching this yeah, film me too. and i think they're like during lockdown everybody had zoom fatigue i think at various points because we were doing zoom quizzes we were doing zoom drinks with friends but then never once did it occur to me to do a zoom seance no, it didn't. I mean, when you're running down that list of things to do on Zoom, when you've had your 1500th family quiz, there's probably about two other things you can do. And one of them is a seance. So maybe we just Clearly. didn't get to that point. 
Or maybe we just didn't have, we just don't have enough friends. Yeah, that will, or that. <laughs> you know, that's it. And we don't have enough friends. So therefore we didn't have the Zoom overload that these girls have to warrant them having a seance. I get it. I get it now. Thank you for clarifying that. I Now I no understand. Worries. But I really enjoyed it. There was lots of great jump scares in this film that were really simply executed yep. because of the medium through which they were trying to portray the story, which was a Zoom meeting. And you kind of, they didn't waste time with backstory either. Like the film is only an hour long. Yeah. And they don't waste time with like trying to get to know all of the characters. It's just boom, we're in this Zoom meeting. We realise they're having a seance. One of the girls has organised it. They get this like a medium who dials into the Zoom meeting. Some of them are absolutely taking the piss, which is genuinely really funny. Yeah. So they're like, take a shot whenever the medium says whatever. So you see them all sneakily trying to take shots and it is funny and it's very natural. And then when shit kind of hits the fan, again, they do that thing, which I rant about all the time, which is they show the fucking demon. Yeah. And there really is no need. In this film, there is no need to even glance the thing because this stuff that happens to them is frightening. It's very paranormal activity. Yep. So you don't actually see any creatures. You don't, and you don't need to. So why in the world did they need to show the demon? I will never know. No, but they I, show it very briefly, and it's it's a bit disappointing. It lets it it lets it down simply because it's not a big budget film. It, the demon is very clearly someone with black face paint on. Yeah, which is frustrating. It's frustrating because it wasn't needed. Like they were doing a good job of scaring the absolute bejeebus out of me. Yeah. And uh, they didn't need, I didn't need to see, I didn't need to see it. I didn't need to see the entity. It was, it was a shame. I thought the acting was fairly decent considering it's quite limited, I'd imagine, to act. I bet it's actually really difficult (laughs) because you're in such a limited window of physical space and actually acting space. But the fact that they had like six windows or whatever meant that you were always trying to figure out where the next freaky thing was going to happen, which I thought was a really was a really positive thing about it. And a lot of it was subtle, so it didn't always draw your attention to it. So No. I'm sure there's lots we missed actually. Yeah, there is there is definitely stuff we missed. There's quite early on when the when they first lose connection to the lady that's doing the seance. The medium. Medium, person. that's the word I was looking for, medium. Something happens very briefly before she gets cut off, which is very clever. Like yeah. I made you rewind because you yeah. were going, Oh, did you see that? Did you see yeah, that? And yeah. I was like, see what? No, I didn't see anything. <laughs> and then we rewounded and I was like, Oh Because you're not expecting to lose her, so your attention's put on the screen of the people that are talking because that's naturally where your eyes go, where the conversation is. And so when you lose her, you catch her being lost. But if you're not looking if you don't look quick enough, you miss the little effect that they put on, which I thought was quite cool. It was a clever film for the current environment. The only thing I really disliked more than the demon was the male character. I thought he was totally unnecessary and really irritating. Yeah, really superfluous to the mm. to the to even the relationship of the girls. I don't understand why they included him. Maybe they just wanted to have a male character in there too. I don't, I really didn't understand it. No, he was a bizarre addition. He was. He was. There was a bit of comic relief from him, I guess, at the beginning, but it just wasn't, again, kind of like seeing the demon wasn't really necessary. So what would you give this film out of five? I think bearing in mind where it's come from, and the limitations on it, it's a solid three and a half. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I'm going to say three and a half as well. You're going to have to start coming up with your own scores, you know. Probably. <laughs> I probably will. I'm just copying you. I'm waiting to see what you're going to say. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I'll give it three and a half. To- uh, uh, yeah, yeah, three. And- I was going to say that too. It's you know, It's good for what it is. It was an hour that I enjoyed. It was well spent. Was it out of this world? No. Did it let itself down? Yeah, at various points. But I 
thought, you know what, you've capitalized well on the current situation. So by all means, enjoy it. I'm going to say something very disparaging at this point, but I'm pretty sure if you make anything that's half decent and send it to Shudder, they'll show it. Potentially. (laughs) Which brings us to our story this week. Okay. So I've got two stories for you this week. And the first story comes from scotsclan.com. So we're making our way back up to Scotland again, specifically to Glasgow. Okay. So when I was researching the Gurnan Man, I used a YouTube channel called Bedtime Stories. You've probably heard of it. If you haven't heard of it, I would highly recommend you go and watch their stuff. Their their videos are brilliant and the artwork that goes with them is brilliant and they're very chilling. I actually became a Patreon for them this week because I thought, you know what? Your stuff is great and, and you you deserve this money. And part of their Gurning Man story, they briefly mentioned something called the Gorbel's Vampire. Do you know, have you ever heard of the Gorbel's Vampire? No, I've not. So this is only a little short story, but I thought it's such an incredible tale that it almost seems like it couldn't possibly be real or that it's come directly from a film. So it comes from scotsclans.com, as I said, but also dangerousminds.net. Two different websites where I got this information from. Are you ready? Never ready. A short distance from Glasgow city centre, on the south bank of the Clyde, is an area known as the Gorbels. The origins of the Gorbels are quite surprising. Most people, myself included, just think of the history of slums associated with this area. But the Gorbels started off as a small village centred on one street. Parts of the Gorbels were considered fashionable and desirable to live in. It was designed in 1872 on a Parisian diamond style centred around a fountain. The design of the Gorbels was never set up to house the amount of people that ended up living there. This was an area that covered just 2% of Glasgow and by 1931, 85,000 thousand people were living here. It didn't take long before the Gorbals was bursting at the seams. It was Glasgow in the 1950s, a time affected by industry and recovering from the effect of war. It was a dark time, literally. The buildings were all stained black with soot, thick smog covered the streets blocking out the natural light. Often it was hard to see more than a few feet in front of you. The destruction and disruption from war meant that by the 1950s there was a massive housing crisis. Overcrowding had reached its absolute peak. World War II saw house building stop completely and now there was a baby boom. The tenements were built quickly and cheaply and were designed to pack in as many people as possible. There were no gardens, there were no lawns, and there were definitely no playgrounds. Appalling conditions came with it, and it was not unusual for houses to have no water facilities and for sewage to run through the rat-riddled streets. This was one of Europe's most deprived neighbourhoods. It was not uncommon for up to eight family members to share the same single bedroom. In many parts of the Gorbals, up to 30 people would have to share the same toilet, and more than 40 residents would have to use the same tap. So life was tough. Here there was a horrendous amount of poverty. Gangs ran amok 
and there was sectarian violence. This area was notorious. But to be fair, there was another side to the Gorbals in spite of all of this. It was famous for its community spirit, which could not be crushed. Kids would fill the streets of all ages, playing football, hide-and-seek, building dens, and even hunting vampires, as this story of the vampire of the Gorbals tells. There was one place that was the exception in the Gorbals. It was a beautiful, green, open space, and it was Glasgow's largest and oldest municipal graveyard the southern necropolis. It was a beautiful graveyard that covered many acres. The cemetery can be found on Caledonia Road. The southern necropolis provided much-needed burial places for the south side of Glasgow, as many of the other cemeteries were filled to capacity. It must have been such a contrast to the dark, bustling slums filled with noise. The impressive entrance to the southern necropolis with its huge gothic gatehouse. For kids growing up in the Gorbals, this must have been the equivalent of their fields, of their woods, somewhere to escape to, somewhere to maybe imagine a different life. But stories had been circulating in the Gorbals. Stories about missing children. Stories about children being murdered in the graveyard. And the culprit was said to be a seven-foot vampire lurking in the southern necropolis. The vampire was described as having iron teeth, which it used to kill and eat up children. The story spread like wildfire. Everyone knew someone who knew someone who had fallen victim to the vampire. The adults wouldn't believe the children, obviously. So the children decided to deal with this monster once and for all, by themselves. Secretly, they passed messages, arranged meetings, made weapons, and plotted their attack. And in 1954, hundreds of young kids from the Gorbals area of Glasgow swarmed into the creepy necropolis graveyard on the hunt for a vampire with iron teeth. Armed with sharp sticks and even dogs, they hunted for hours upon hours. More and more kids came over the next two days as the hunt continued. The police were called, but they couldn't move the children. And it took a local head teacher to finally disperse the crowd. Tam Smith was a seven-year-old schoolboy at the time, and he recalled the scene in a newspaper interview. The walls were lined with people. We ventured through the gatehouse, and there were loads of kids in there, some wandering around, some sitting on walls. There were a lot of dogs too, and mums and dads with kids. We found a place to stand out of the way because there were so many people there. I think the whole of the Gorbals was in that graveyard. It's hard to put an estimate on the number of people. It all started in the playground, according to Ronnie Sanderson who was an eight-year-old at the time. The word was there was a vampire and everyone was going to head out there after school. At three o'clock, the school emptied and everyone made a beeline for it. We sat there for ages on the wall, waiting and waiting. 
I wouldn't go in because it was a bit scary for me. I think somebody saw someone wandering around and the cry went up. There's the vampire! And that was it. That was the word to get off that wall quick and either get away from it or hunt it. I just remember scampering home to my mother. What's the matter with you? Mum, I've seen a vampire. And I got a clout around the ear for my trouble. I didn't really even know what a vampire was. In the days that followed, the kids were lectured on the folly of vampire hunting. The story of the missing children had been completely unfounded. Everyone now wanted to know how this happened and who was to blame. Local historians believe that they were inspired by the earlier legend of Jenny with the Iron Teeth, a murderous ghost said to haunt Glasgow Green. There was also an American comic book at the time entitled The Vampire with the Iron Teeth. Maybe they were inspired by a passage in the Bible, Daniel 7-7, that reads, Behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. After the story appeared in the local press, it gained worldwide coverage. An unlikely alliance of Christians, communists and the National Union of Teachers blamed imported American horror comic books for the mass hysteria. Before long, the country was in the grip of a full-blown panic. The campaign even reached Parliament, where it was championed by Alice Cullen, the Labour MP for the Gorbals, and resulted in the 1955 Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act being passed, an act which still stands today. That story is so cool. Right? Can you imagine being in that graveyard with all those kids? <laughs> so apparently this police officer arrived. This yeah. I can't remember his name, but this one guy arrived and he was like, what the fuck? Because he'd been called out thinking it was like something minor. He got to the graveyard. <laughs> Hundreds of children with weapons prowling around. And apparently one would scream, like in the description where it said, you know, one would scream, there's a vampire and they'd all go running towards it. And this police officer was like, okay you need to go and he thought at first it was a joke and then he realized these children were deadly serious and he couldn't nobody could get them to move they did it for three days they hunted for this vampire three days how how amazing like it's such an amazing story it sounds like it would make a great movie like it's a son of rambo kind of thing isn't it is that kind of it's a total kids adventure movie. yeah absolutely there's someone write it I'm not clever enough to do it, but someone needs to write this as a film. It'd be great. The seven foot with iron teeth is interesting though, isn't it? It's quite a specific Apparently, and I don't really know why, I did read in lots of places that the lore that existed in Glasgow was often to do with people or creatures with iron teeth. So there was Jenny with the iron teeth. Which is very different from Jenny with the good hair. Very different. But she was meant to have like hunted children and eaten them. And then there was, you know, the way um, parents will often have like a, 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 a is it a boogeyman yep. to get their kids. The one in Glasgow was the <laughs> Iron Man. I know what you mean, but what you said is not what you wanted to say. What did I want to say? It sounded, it meant that it sounded like parents kept a boogeyman, a boogeyman to go out and get their kids <laughs> for them. That's not what you meant. No, think. no. What I meant was. <laughs> to scare their kids. That parents would like have this narrative that they would say, oh, if you do that now, yep. he'll, the man will get you. 
But it was the Iron Man in Glasgow who was a man with iron teeth. So I guess these kids were like, they already had Iron Man or Iron Teeth lore in their in their psyche anyway. And then this playground rumor started that these children were being murdered and it was a vampire. But you can see how it would have got to this point because if you think about the conditions, if they're talking about the, what was 85,000 people in here? Yeah, living in the Gorbals, yeah. So all it takes is like one kid at one school to go, oh, you know Jock from that tenement? Oh, and, yeah. And nobody know who Jock is. And then that's being very stereotypical saying Jock, but... Um, <laughs> and then it gets to the next school and it's already distorted. So it becomes another person, another kid that they don't know that's gone missing. But because there's so many people, they're not expected to know everybody. And it just takes, it would go up like touch paper, you can imagine, can't you? Particularly if there's nothing else to do as well. If they're living in those crowded conditions with no open space, I can see how it just got to this momentous. Frenzy. Yeah, frenzy, yeah. Imagine them all secretly making their weapons, getting ready to go and hunt this vampire. Like... Look, like nobody got hurt or anything like that. So I, I just think it's such an amazing story. Imagine if you're a tall guy just walking, like going to visit the grave of one of your relatives, and you just happened, <laughs> just happened to walk through at that moment. And there was another local legend about there was a woman who lived in the tenements and used to, and had cats. So she would bring her cats to the graveyard to let them have like fresh air and yeah. exercise. And the kids then all started this rumor that she was she was the uh, secret lover. Of the, the of the vampire and or the Iron Man. And she became, they used to call her the Iron Bird, I think. <laughs> but those kind of things are like, kids do that. That's what kids do when you make these crazy legends and rumours about people that are in your community that are a little bit odd. In my version of this film, which I'm writing in my head, the vampire is real, but the vampire meets its demise from these hundreds of kids hunting it. Definitely. Please it make this film. It has to happen. It has to happen. That's a great is, story. If anybody's out there that can, you know, write films, can you let us know? Netflix? We'll star in it. I don't know what we'll do, who we'll play, but we'll star in it as children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the only more modern vampire panic Okay. that has occurred in the UK. Do you remember what the other one was? I do, but I don't know if you want me to tell you. Go for it. <laughs> the Highgate Cemetery Vampire. Yes. In the 1960s and 70s. Now, I didn't realise how intense this story gets. Oh, massively intense. I didn't realise. So, buckle up. Are you ready? I am ready. Yeah, go. There's two places, sorry, that I've gotten this information from. And the first one was a really good Vice article that I saved about a thousand years ago with the intention of doing an episode on it. And the information um, isn't in this particular episode, but it's a really interesting story. And it was written by a guy called Francisco Garcia. So I'll leave the link in the description. It's a really good article that surmises everything that happened. And the story that I'm reading today comes from davidcastleton.net, who keeps a blog about like spooky goings on. And it's really interesting. So well worth a read as well. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a series of bizarre events occurred in and around Highgate Cemetery in London. A number of sightings of phantoms and spectres, particularly of a tall, dark-cloaked entity with burning eyes, led to speculation the capital had acquired its very own vampire. Reports soon came from Highgate of tombs being broken into. Graves and bodies were desecrated and black magic rituals allegedly performed. 
Vampire hunters claim to have broken open coffins and plunged stakes into and even burnt the corpses of the undead. Newspapers obsessed over these strange occurrences. TV programs were made about a supposed nest of vampires in Highgate Cemetery and those promising to root out this ancient evil were interviewed. On Friday the 13th of March 1970, hundreds of would-be vampire hunters invaded the Victorian graveyard and engaged in a search for what was becoming known as the Highgate Vampire. But did any sort of vampire exist? Who were these self-proclaimed vampire hunters, some of whom would dedicate years to trying to understand the phenomenon and to hunting the vampire down? And how could a late 20th century city be gripped by a panic more at home in the pages of a Victorian Gothic novel? Highgate Cemetery was a far more ramshackle place than it is now. Once one of London's most fashionable burial grounds, the graveyard was by the 1960s overgrown and neglected. Graffiti was scrawled across headstones, vandals had pulled doors off vaults, Cracks and holes in tombs offered glimpses of coffins, and in some cases, bodies. It's not really surprising that the dilapidated grandeur of this cemetery, with its ivy-entwined gothic monuments, would generate legends of hauntings and sinister creatures, and draw those with an interest in the occult and the macabre. According to David Farrant, a young local man with a passion for the paranormal, the first murmurings about a strange being began in late 1969. Farrant claimed that he spoke to two people, an old lady who'd been out walking her dog and a middle-aged accountant, who told similar stories about what they had seen in the cemetery. The old lady had been walking down Swain's Lane, a road running through the graveyard, when she saw a tall, dark figure with glaring eyes, that seemed to be floating towards her. She felt the air turn icy cold. The accountant had gotten lost in the vast cemetery. A bell started to clang, and he walked towards the sound, hoping it might guide him out of the necropolis. Instead, as the bell tolled, he became aware of something behind him, and noticed the temperature plummeting. He turned around to see a tall, dark figure, that stared at him intensely before it vanished. Intrigued, Farrant decided to investigate by spending a night in the graveyard. He said, At first I suspected it might just be an animal, or someone dressed up or messing about, because all these stories about vampires were in the news. But around midnight, I caught sight of a figure, about seven feet tall, that appeared to be floating just above the ground. I saw its face, and two points of intense red light. The area turned icy cold as if I'd stepped into a refrigerator. The figure seemed to be draining me of energy, and I felt I was losing control of my normal faculties. It felt like a vivid dream, like I wanted to wake up, but I couldn't. Realising I was under intense psychic attack, I repeated mentally a cabalistic incantation used to repel evil forces. It disappeared. But I decided then that the reports were true. 
In February 1970, Farrant wrote a letter to a local newspaper, the Hampstead and Highgate Express, also known as the Ham and High, asking if anyone had seen anything similar. A number of people responded, saying they had glimpsed apparitions in Highgate Cemetery and Swains Lane. These phantoms, though, were of a variety of descriptions, including a tall man wearing a hat, a ghostly cyclist, a lady dressed in white, a face grimacing through the bars of a gate, a person wading into a pond and a pale gliding entity. There were also reports of the sounds of bells and voices calling. There was little coherence in the types of spectres people were claiming to have seen. But another local young man with an interest in the supernatural, Sean Manchester, was intrigued by what he had read. And Manchester would soon make public his ideas about what the apparitions in the graveyard might be. Though Farrant had never claimed the dark figure he had encountered was a vampire, Sean Manchester had little doubt that a genuine Nosferatu was stalking suburban North London. Manchester contacted the Hammond High and on the 27th of February 1970 the newspaper published an interview entitled Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? in which Manchester outlined a theory to explain the monster's presence. Manchester alleged that a king vampire of the undead was buried in the graveyard. This vampire who in life had been an aristocrat and practitioner of black magic in medieval Romania, had been transported to England in a coffin by his followers in the early 18th century. The vampire had been interred on the site that would later become Highgate Cemetery, and his followers had also purchased a house for him in London's fashionable West End. The reason for the Highgate vampire's reappearance, Manchester said, was that rituals recently carried out by Satanists in the cemetery had reawakened his evil presence. Manchester claimed to have spoken to local people who had experienced vampiric activity. A schoolgirl had seen the vampire when walking down Swain's Lane. She began having nightmares, in which something evil tried to come into her bedroom. Eventually, two wounds appeared on her neck, and she started to display symptoms of anemia. Manchester, with the help of her boyfriend, filled her room with garlic, crucifixes and holy water, and her condition soon improved. He then spoke to another young woman, called Jacqueline, who said she'd woken up in the night to find something cold clutching her hand. The next morning she had noticed deep tears in the flesh where she tried to force her hand free. Jacqueline and her younger brother soon developed a fascination that kept drawing them to the more dilapidated western side of Highgate Cemetery, where, Manchester suspected, the vampiric infection had occurred. Manchester claimed that after details about Highgate Vampire became public, more people contacted him, all describing a similar tall, dark being with blazing eyes. In his interview, Manchester didn't supply any proof to back up his ideas about the vampire coming from Eastern Europe. He would later state this part of the article was a journalistic embellishment, but in a book he published in 1985, The Highgate Vampire, Manchester does mention a foreign nobleman's coffin being brought to Highgate. 
There, however, appears to be more solid evidence concerning the occult ceremonies Manchester believed were taking place in the graveyard. Farrant said that in Highgate Cemetery he often found the discarded remains of Satanist rituals, stubs of black candles, satanic markings on the floors of tombs. In one small chapel-like tomb with a marble floor and stained glass windows, he found an inverted pentagram had been drawn on the floor. Like Manchester, Farrant felt such activities might have awoken a long dormant presence. Farrant claimed his research showed that, though the dark figure had not been glimpsed for many years before the rash of sightings in the 60s and 70s, people had seen similar entities in the Victorian epoch. According to Manchester, the police were well aware of black magic practices going on in the cemetery. It's worth pointing out that Farrant himself was a member of a group that used the cemetery for rituals, though pagan Wicca ones rather than anything satanic. Farrant stated that his group never interfered with graves or bodies, but, as many of their rituals had to be conducted outdoors, they used the cemetery because it was a secluded open space. The late 1960s and early 1970s saw a revival of interest in all aspects of mysticism and the occult, including paganism, eastern mysticism, satanism, witchcraft and the teachings of Aleister Crowley, as well as the emergence of a number of less conventional Christian sects. It's clear that an overgrown and secluded place like Highgate Cemetery could offer those engaged in the more outlandish aspects of this resurgence a suitably atmospheric space to carry out their ceremonies. The Hampstead and Highgate Express continued to follow the vampire story, re-interviewing Farrant and Manchester several times over the next months. In an article published on the 6th of March 1970, Farrant said that he had found dead foxes in the cemetery, but couldn't work out how they had died. Manchester claimed he had also seen the foxes, and suggested the vampire may have been using them as a food source. Soon it was alleged the animals had been found drained of blood with their throats ripped open. Reports of the Highgate vampire commotion soon reached the national and even international media. Articles appeared in the national press, television programmes were made by both ITV and the BBC, and even the international news agency Reuters featured the case. The anxiety around the Highgate vampire was part of a growing obsession with such creatures in British society. A number of TV programmes and horror movies had focused on vampires. One film, the Hammer Horror production Taste the Blood of Dracula, had actually been shot in Highgate Cemetery just a year before the Highgate vampire incidents began. More chillingly, on the night of Halloween 1968, an act of desecration was discovered in nearby Tottenham Park Cemetery. Flowers had been taken from graves and arranged in circles with arrows pointing to a new grave which was uncovered. A stake had been driven through the coffin lid into the heart of the corpse. As interest in the Highgate vampire mounted, a rivalry grew up between David Farrant and Sean Manchester, with each belittling the other's skills as an exorcist and each stating that he would be the one to expel the spectre lurking in Highgate. 
on the evening of Friday the 13th of March 1970. A programme aired on ITV featuring Farrant, Manchester and others claiming to have seen supernatural figures around Highgate. As Friday the 13th is an ominous day, according to British superstition, this date is often chosen to broadcast programmes dealing with the occult. The programme even included live outside reporting from Highgate Cemetery. Within two hours of the programme being shown, hundreds of would-be vampire hunters began to arrive in Highgate. They surged over the locked gates and walls of the necropolis despite the efforts of the police officers to stop them. The vampire hunters, many armed with weapons, searched frantically among the Victorian tombs. Those interviewed at the scene appeared to genuinely believe in the vampire, saying they were determined to find the monster and put an end to its diabolical actions. The mob caught no vampires that night, though some insisted they'd glimpsed the tall, dark figure. The anxiety and terror certainly seemed real. Manchester would later say the Highgate vampire provoked panic and fear and disbelief on a scale which one might anticipate if an alien had landed from outer space. The collective imagination had no defence against what we unearthed back in the late 60s in Highgate. Farrant, meanwhile, was still unconvinced the spooky presence was a Nosferatu. He complained that the media hysteria and local superstition had turned the Highgate's entity into a vampire. On that Friday the 13th, as the amateur vampire hunters swarmed over the cemetery, Manchester and some companions made their way to the entrance of one particular catacomb. Manchester had previously been led there by a sleepwalking girl, who claimed to have been bothered by the Highgate vampire, and had been exhibiting symptoms similar to the previous schoolgirl. Unable to open the door, the group used a rope to climb down into the catacomb through a window. They found themselves in a vault, with several coffins, one of which, a sinister-looking casket made of nearly black wood, didn't seem to fit in with the rest of them. Manchester and his companions performed an exorcism with holy water and garlic, and sprinkled salt around. A few months later, on the 1st of August... The charred, decapitated remains of a woman were found near the catacomb. The police suspected this mutilated corpse had been used in a black magic ritual. After this, both Farrant and Manchester seemed to become much more active. Farrant was apprehended by the police in the churchyard next to the cemetery one night, clutching a crucifix and a wooden stake. He was arrested but the case against him collapsed when it came to court. Manchester and his followers, meanwhile, were led to a different family vault by a female psychic helper. After forcing open the doors, they found a black coffin similar to the one they had seen in the catacombs. Manchester, suspecting it had been moved by black magic devotees, levered open the lid. It was only when we discovered in the putrid chamber of that tomb in August 1970. What we did and looked upon, the horrific countenance of what was inside, Manchester said, that we had absolute confirmation of what we were dealing with. Manchester wanted to drive a stake through the body, 
but a member of his entourage persuaded him not to, as interfering with remains was a crime in England. Instead, the group performed a ritual that used seven crucifixes, four white candles and seven cups of holy water in a ceremony carried out by four men and a woman to banish the spirit of evil or evil presence using the Latin formula. News of the spoken exorcism did indeed bring a sigh of relief to many living in the area. Manchester says the cemetery officials then bricked up the vault with a crucifix and holy water left inside. But, he reflected, the vault didn't remain bricked up for very long. Farrant and his group were also making efforts to deal with the strange presence. They decided to try and communicate with the entity to discover its purpose. In Highgate Cemetery, they conducted rituals using two circles, incense, candles and a medium. The first time they tried this, the press interrupted them. A year later, according to Farrant, another attempt saw the entity clasping the medium by the throat. We had to break the circle. The area turned cold. She felt she was being enveloped by blackness. She felt something was trying to strangle her. Farrant was now convinced that the entity was malignant. After hearing of incidents in which a sinister force had pushed people over in Swain's Lane, he did some more research. He came up with a theory that the being wasn't a vampire at all, but an evil presence that travelled along a ley line. This ley line began at the Columbarium, a part of the cemetery where urns are kept and ran across Highgate through two old public houses, Highgate Wood and a block of flats built over nunnery. Farrant claimed he found evidence of disturbing supernatural activity in all of these places. Some people he spoke to said they had glimpsed a tall dark figure. A manager in one of the pubs apparently saw a sight so horrific it turned his hair white and one of the flats built over the nunnery had to be exercised. Despite the ceremony that Manchester and his colleagues conducted in the tomb, any relief was short-lived. Manchester said strange occurrences failed to cease and more horrifying incidents ended any hope that we had quietened the disturbance with a mere spoken exorcism rite. Further vampiric outrages were to follow. About three years later, Manchester claims, he and his associates discovered the same ominous black casket in the cellars of an abandoned and, suitably, gothic mansion on the borders of Highgate and Crouch End. Manchester suspected the coffin had been moved there to avoid all the attention the media and enthusiastic vampire hunters had focused on Highgate Cemetery. Manchester's group dragged the coffin out of the basement up the stairs and into the grounds of the mansion. He said dawn was about to break, starting to send spears of bright illumination onto the macabre spectacle below. The lid was removed and we beheld the same thing we had seen in August 1970. This was now the early part of 1974. Our quarry this time looked even more exaggerated, even more distorted than I remembered it, far worse than that time in the Highgate vault. Its burning, fierce eyes under the many-furrowed brow were staring, 
yellow at the edges with blood-red centres unlike anything imaginable. The mouth was set in a cruel expression, the lips were drawn back. Manchester drove a stake into the Highgate vampire. With a mighty blow, a sharpened shaft of wood impaled the creature's heart, we witnessed the body shell cave in and quickly turn filthy brown and that itself soon became a sluggish flow of inhuman slime and viscera in the bottom of the casket. As Manchester believed that a cremation is recommended as the ultimate deterrent and preventative to the vampire's nightly wanderings, he and his followers then burned the coffin and what was left of the body. This took several hours, after which all that remained was a great scorch mark and some bones that needed to be ground down and cast to the four corners or four winds of the earth. Following his exhaustive process, Manchester pronounced that Highgate Cemetery is purged. Manchester's claims to have destroyed the Highgate vampire did little to end the feud between him and Farrant. There had even been rumours that the two would meet in a magician's duel on Parliament Hill on Friday the 13th of April 1973. But this never happened. In 1974, Farrant was jailed after being convicted of interfering with remains and vandalising memorials in Highgate Cemetery. Farrant asserted that the damage had been caused by Satanists rather than him. But both Farrant's imprisonment and the rumoured duel served to keep the Highgate vampire in the public mind for several years. The quarrel between Farrant and Manchester dragged on for decades, with each claiming to be an expert exorcist while dismissing the other's abilities. Both spent many years investigating paranormal phenomena, and both produced books, articles and websites and gave many interviews about the Highgate vampire. The two men, and their followers, frequently sparred on social media. David Farrant died, aged 73, in April 2019. But Manchester still works as an exorcist and bishop in the British Old Catholic Church, a conservative sect that broke away from Roman Catholicism. After slaying the Highgate vampire, Manchester maintains that he has destroyed dozens of bloodsuckers. One of these incidents, apparently, involved a secondary contagion from the Highgate vampire in Finchley's Great Northern London Cemetery in 1982. A bite from that infamous Nosferatu had corrupted the body of a woman called Lucia. Arriving at the cemetery, Manchester saw a spider-like creature about the size of a cat. He staked it and felt sure he had put an end to the pollution of the Highgate vampire for good. But... Has the Highgate vampire, or whatever it is, really been laid to rest? Farrant thought not. And ominously, a number of sightings of tall dark figures with burning eyes have occurred from the 1990s until the present day. One witness who claimed to have glimpsed the spook in 1991 said, He was very tall well over six feet in height and very thin. He wore a long black cape-like cloak and a top hat. His dress looked Victorian in style and he appeared all in black. He also appeared to glide and there was no sound. The ground was littered with leaves and yet I heard no sound from him. 
That is an incredible story. There's so much to talk about here. But I need to get this out of the way before we move on to the serious stuff of unpacking whether this vampire is real or not. Who were Sean Manchester and Farrant to think that they were qualified enough <laughs> to be vampire hunters? Where did they get this idea from that they were the ones that were going to do it? Because they knew deep down in their incredibly fragile egos, they knew that they were the ones that had to defeat the vampire. They and were the heir woe, to Van Helsing. And woe betide any pseudo-paranormal investigator that stood in the other one's way. Can I just say, before we go any further with this story, that I love the injection of Farrant and Manchester into this story and the subsequent willy-waving that occurred the entire way through. Because that was all it is. It's just posturing. It's just two men posturing at each other. And I um, I just found the whole thing hilarious. It feels like when me and my brother have a disagreement about computer games, it's that kind of like you get into an argument over it. Nobody really cares, but apart from the two people that are involved. In it. And one of you conducts a satanic ritual. Yeah, that's how we end all of our disputes. Oh, about. I did wonder what all the black candles were for. <laughs> I My biggest problem with Sean Manchester is that he had to dispose of the ground bones to the four corners of the earth. I mean, fair play to him. That is that is attention to detail. You know, if you had found this creature right physically in front of you in this coffin that seems to be moving of its own accord, yeah. you find this creature. It is the 1980s. Take a fucking photograph, mate. Or, or <laughs> film it. Or do something. Like, you, you suddenly have to stake it and the whole body disappears and then you ground it up into dust and throw it into the four corners. You can't, you can't throw anything Sean into the four corners. Manchester. You actually physically have to take it to the four corners of the earth. That's very true. That would have taken a good amount of time, Sean. Well, where was Sean? We don't know. So he might have gone. So we can't make that. I, need, I also need to know that on something that is a hundred almost 100% spherical, what counts as the four corners? Sean, write in and tell us. Please and thank you. And if you are a flat earther, don't. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, Dan has a thing about flat earthers. He won't even entertain talking about it. So It's easy to understand how this became a thing when it did. It's also easy to understand where satanic panic came from. Because actually, the, exp- the spiritual explanation that, that accompanies the wild 60s, which is not a term that's ever been used, I don't think, meant that actually satanic practice was on the rise because people were exploring things and like a lot of it was actually Wiccan practice and pagan practice and not actually as scary as it seemed to those devout Christians that were scared of it. Um, but there was actually genuinely black magic on the increase. So you can see where it's, where this is coming from. And actually it probably wasn't whether you disregard the vampire or not, it probably wasn't inaccurate to say that there was loads of black magic and satanic rituals happening in a graveyard because it was happening all over the country in fact all over the western world because that was part of this exploration of this freedom that was coming with the 60s and clearly like the police found the charred remains of a woman who had been beheaded which is horrific yep and that had been a part of a satanic ritual now i didn't look into the details of that because i just didn't really want to to be honest and that then it becomes a true crime story however my big problem with this story aside from the fact that you've basically got two men who are trying to you know posture each other and they're willy waving their constant narrative about satanic ritual and 
demons and vampires and this happening and bodies moving and coffins surely that must have caused some of the rituals that then subsequently took place absolutely i wonder if that's why the police eventually arrested farrant because they were like i'm fucking sick of you well the thing is we we always talk about talking something into existence uh tulpa or whatever in terms of the paranormal but actually the more you talk and communicate about stuff about satanic rituals and stuff like that the more it perks people's interest and so it's it also encourages people to do that thing as well it doesn't just talk something into existence i am interested by the way that this this is this turned into a vampire story because actually a lot of the initial sightings at the beginning were spooky cemetery sightings and you know how i feel about cemeteries i'd imagine that there probably are some ghosts there i know you don't think there is and lots of people have said why would you haunt some the cemetery (laughs) but the nature of the place wouldn't surprise me if you saw some kind of stuff going on all the time and actually the the old lady and the accountant which i can only imagine were labeled that way for to give them credit absolutely <laughs> who has more credibility than an accountant and, and an, an old, old lady, lady walking her dog and the fact that she's walking her dog suggests that she's a quite able able bodied old lady and so therefore is of sound mind and that's what it's going with i think potentially the sightings that they made weren't really vampire sightings they were just spooky sightings and a lot of the stuff that they contributed to the ham high paper which is a great name, as an aside, yeah. were, were similarly spooky stories. They weren't necessarily... It seems the vampire narrative seems to be driven almost entirely by Sean Master. It is. Sean Master. <laughs> Don't say things like that about him. He might come for us. We might Sean get into Manchester. A, he might get into a war with us on That was a media. Freudian slip, I think. Sean Manchester and Farrant, whose first name I've completely forgotten. I mean, Farrant was completely opposed to the idea that it was a vampire. He thought it was just an evil spirit. But his feud with Sean Manchester pumped the narrative that it was a vampire yeah. because Sean Manchester was like, it's an ancient vampire brought here from Romania. And it'd be, I'd be interested to know if there was an influx of Eastern European migrants at that time in the 60s and 70s because I don't really... It probably would have been people fleeing communism, but it wouldn't have been that high level because it was very hard to get out of Eastern Europe at that time. Fair enough. Because, um, you know, often stories like this of like supernatural negativity accompany waves of xenophobia i can tell you where it came from where almost, yeah almost a hundred percent the narrative of that hammer horror story it's it's a it's a it's a vampire story isn't it it's a vampire origin story it came from has all vampires have to come from hungry romania area because that's what we're told by the movies yeah if he'd have gone i would have given him way more credit if he'd have gone i don't know there was a grave that was brought over from columbia and it contained a vampire because it's not the narrative that comes with the fiction yeah true Whereas he's telling us something that we that reinforces his idea that it's a vampire because that's what Shelley's told us. No, Shelley didn't do vampire, did she? Bram Stoker. Stoker. And all these Hammer horror movies that have come in the fifties and sixties have all told, or have all done that same narrative. This is where vampires come from. So he's going with that because that's what vampire law says. But actually, that law is patchy at best. I mean, yeah, it is absolutely, and it's interesting that we've got two stories that are both cultural phenomena where you have hysteria that is driven by pop culture. So you had like the comic books of the kids mm. of the Gorbals and then you have Hammer Horror films. So ban all pop culture, yeah? That's where you're going? Yeah, that is exactly yeah. where I'm going. Pop culture is the enemy. Leads this is hysteria. what we've established. The only thing that you could potentially say leads credit, lends credit to 
Manchester's narrative is the two experiences of victims with bite marks. However, I feel like these came up after Sean Manchester started talking about them. It, it does feel like a lot of these narratives appeared very conveniently yep. after the fact. Yep. So make of that what you will. And, you know, the bite marks is, again, it's characteristic of vampire lore, which is almost entirely fictional. There's nothing to it. But what I will say, and I'll leave you on this thought, is that the possibility that dark spirits exist around areas where actual black magic and satanic rituals have gone on. Not ones that are misinterpreted as being satanic, but actual satanic rituals with evil intent is not beyond the realms of possibility, in my opinion. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, you can find out more about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com where you can find the links to our social medias. You can find the link to our email address where you can send your own spooky story. You can also find the link to our Patreon where for $5 or $2 a month, you can get access to heaps of extra content. And that includes 50p Movie Club, which is... Another podcast that I do, which is where we watch a movie. (laughs) That's really bad, sorry and on that note (laughs) we shall see you next week bye